with me again, friends, to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20 tonight. We have been in Exodus for several months, as you know, journeying along with Moses and Israel, and now Moses is back at Sinai, that same mountain, remember, where God first called him in the burning bush to be the deliverer of the children of Israel those many months ago. We are back at Sinai. This time to meet, Israel meets with their great king, their true deliverer. And we're going to be thinking about the Ten Commandments. Israel has been rescued from Egyptian slavery. They have begun their journey toward the promised land, and here they are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now we saw in chapter 19, just this morning, how God came down on the mountain in fire and thunder and earthquake and in great column of smoke, and he summoned Moses up to appear before God's presence. And there... God would deliver to him the summary of his own character and his will for his people, his creatures. And that's what we have before us in the Ten Commandments. And so as we've been going through some of the great narratives of Exodus, here we're going to slow down and work through the Ten Commandments one by one because they are so fundamental to the Christian life. Ten Commandments... So we'll be studying our way through these for the next 10 weeks or so, with maybe a few supplementary studies thrown in as well. Now you might think, why slow down and belabor the point of the Ten Commandments? Everyone knows the Ten Commandments. We rehearse them together at least once every month as a congregation on those Lord's Supper Sundays. Is this necessary? Well, I think so, for a few reasons. One is that I'm not sure folks know the Ten Commandments and their implications as well as we might think. Now, that's not meant as a scold, but just remember, I I won't rehearse the data again here tonight, but according to the annual State of Theology report that comes out each year from our friends at Ligonier Ministries, Bible-believing, professing Christians are greatly undereducated and under-discipled. They are theologically malnourished, and and what once may have been assumed even 50 years ago, it cannot be assumed anymore. It's likely in a congregation our size that we have some folks who might say, you know, I don't know the theology of the Ten Commandments as well as I thought. We have some folks here in our church, some are relatively new Christians. Some did not grow up in a Presbyterian church, and they are relatively new to the Reformed faith. So they might not be terribly familiar with the traditional Reformed understanding of the Ten Commandments. So what a teaching opportunity. Moreover, for a long time, Both in the early church and in the days of the Protestant Reformation, these Ten Commandments, or Ten Words, as they're sometimes called, the Decalogue, that's what it means, Ten Words, Decalogue, they were part of the core content of discipleship. As young children were taught in the faith and new converts were discipled, there were three basic things everyone was encouraged to memorize. The Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments. And if you've ever studied the back portions of your Westminster uh, shorter or larger catechisms, you'll know that these wonderful teaching tools that are the backbone of our theology here in this church and in our denomination, part of what we call the Westminster Standards, uh, you can even find a copy of the shorter catechism in the back of your hymnals, you'll notice that towards the back of those catechisms, there are a lot of questions devoted just to explaining the meaning and the significance of each of the Ten Commands. In the shorter catechism, questions 41 through 82 are devoted just to going through and explaining each of the Ten Commandments. In the larger catechism, it does the same in questions 98 
through 149. So, unless I've done my math wrong, that's 92 catechism questions in our standards devoted just to understanding the Ten Commandments. There's a lot happening in these ten words. There's a lot more for us than perhaps we might have first realized. One of the things we'll emphasize over and over again is that the law of God is spiritual and comprehensive. That is, as the catechism helps us understand, and I hope how our sermons will help us understand, there's more to God's law than just our outward conformity to its rules. Jesus makes this clear when he expounds upon the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember how Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall not murder. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So as much as it's about conformity to the precept, it's equally about the posture, the secret thoughts and motives of one's heart. The law is spiritual, but it's also comprehensive. The commands in the Ten Commandments are really just summary points about a whole host of other spiritual disciplines that should be true of God's people. For example, do not murder means more than just simply not slaying innocent people. It's about protecting life, preserving the life of others, yourself, health, etc. It's a summary for a whole category of sins forbidden and duties required of us. So, these things, I think, are worth slowing down for and meditating on. So tonight, I want to give a brief explanation on the use of the law of God in the Christian life, because we may have some folks who this might be new territory for them. And then I want to spend the rest of the time studying the first commandment. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll consider the second commandment. So first, let's read God's word, and then we'll pray and ask for his help and blessing. Exodus 20, we won't read the whole of the Ten Commandments tonight. We'll read verses 1 through 3. This is God's holy word. Hear it. And God spoke... All these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, would you please give us ears to hear what your spirit says to the church from this portion of your holy word. Show us yourself. Show us ourselves in light of it. Show us Christ. Truly, like the psalmist wrote ages ago, show us marvelous things out of your law. And all for Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Well, before we jump into the first commandment proper, as I say, as a bit of a preface, we need to mention briefly how to use God's law. Now, as I say, some of this, for some of you, this is familiar territory that you've heard for many years. But for others of you, this may be a new idea. In the Reformed tradition, in classic Presbyterian doctrine, we have what are called the three uses of the law. Uh, That way of terming it was popularized by John Calvin, but it's not an arbitrary labeling. It's a biblical one. That is, when we look at God's word, the Holy Scripture, we see phrases like the law or the law of God. It means one thing. Now, in, excuse me, when Psalm 119 says law of God, it may mean one thing. When James in the New Testament says law in his epistles, he means it in one sense. When Paul uses law in Galatians, he means it in another sense. And when we understand how law, that word law, that, that term, that concept, 
gets used in the Bible according to these three uses, it helps us read and understand our Bibles better and also better understand how the law works in our Christian lives. So first of all, there's what is called the pedagogical use. That is the law as a teacher. That's what pedagogue means, teacher or instructor of children. That's what the word pedagogue or pedagogical means. In this sense, the law teaches us about the character of God and it teaches us about ourselves. It is this use of the law that shows us God's holiness and perfection. It shows us our sinfulness. It shows us our failure to obey God's law and it convicts us and ultimately drives us to flee to Christ for mercy. The law teaches us about God, about ourselves, and about our need for someone else who will obey. We need a savior. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Paul uses the word law in Galatians 3, verse 24, for example, when he writes, the law is a schoolmaster or tutor to bring us to Christ. Now, you may have noticed in some Reformed churches, and uh, it's perfectly fine either way, in my opinion, in some Reformed churches, they'll have a prayer of confession like we have in our morning worship services. We have that unison prayer of confession. We confess our sins before the Lord, and we're reminded of his abundant grace and pardon. Sometimes, Reformed or Presbyterian churches will use the Ten Commandments as a form of confession. That is, we're reading God's holy standard, examining ourselves and our hearts and minds and attitudes and actions in light of God's holy standard, and we realize how far short we fall. We have not so much broken the Ten Commandments as we have broken ourselves upon them. We have sinned against God, and so we flee to Christ for mercy. That law pricks our conscience and drives us to run to Christ for mercy and begging forgiveness. That's that first use of the law sense, that pedagogical use. A little bit more on that in just a moment. But then there's what's called the second use of the law. That's often called the civil use. The law of God informs our consciences. It restrains wickedness in society. Yes, despite the moral decay of our culture, so many of our laws and a good deal of our own everyday habits, what you and I might call just common decency, have been shaped in profound ways by God's law, informing our consciences, restraining wickedness in our culture, and we ought to be thankful for that. So that's the second use, or the civil use of the law. And then there's the third use of the law. John Calvin actually called it the principal use of God's law. The main reason God gave his law to his people was that it would be our guide, a rule for life, a code to govern our lives under his lordship. Formerly, outside of Christ, the law convicts us, it condemns us, but it drives us to Christ, and in him we find grace and mercy, we find pardon and cleansing. The penalty for sin, for our sin, has fallen upon him. And so in Christ, the law no longer condemns us, but the law of God has not just disappeared, so to speak. Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So did the law just go poof and vanish? No. Rather, it is repackaged or represented or reappropriated, and it comes to us from the hand of Christ. This time, not as an accuser, but as our friend. It speaks to us not with a voice of a condemning judge, but rather with the voice of our Savior. In Christ, as his redeemed people, we receive the law as the words of a friend, the words of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus, guiding us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, to use the language of Psalm 23. Or, as Jesus himself said in John 14, if ye love me, 
Keep my commandments. This is how God's redeemed people ought to live. To show their love for Christ their Savior. To show their thankfulness for being redeemed. To show their love and gratitude for being plucked out of their hell-bound path and being restored to God and being brought into a right standing, a justified standing, a redeemed standing before Him. In the words, really, I love how our children's catechism puts it. Many of you children have memorized this. You could probably say it with me. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. It's really that simple. And by the way, that's why I love how in many other, many churches, including our own, we'll sometimes use the law of God as our confession of faith. It's fine to use it as that confession of sin to prick our consciences, that first use of the law. But it's also good from time to time to use it as that third use of the law. That is, in light of God's kindness, in light of the mercy he's shown us, in light of our new redeemed status, what do we believe? How should we then live? We rehearse the ten words together as our guide for Christian living. That's good as well. So remember these things as we study through the Ten Commandments in these coming weeks. The law shows forth the character of God, but it also shows forth what the character of the Christian ought to be, how we should then live, to borrow that famous Francis Schaeffer phrasing. This will guard us, on the one hand, against indifference, because God is holy. And his law is serious. It's not something for us to be flippant about. But on the other hand, it will guard us against prideful self-reliance. Because the character that we need, the character that God demands, is the character that only God works into the lives of his people by grace, through faith, in Christ Jesus, his son. So that's the first thing that we need to think about. The law, how? The law, how? Secondly, the law, why? The law, why? So bearing all that in mind, we turned our attention now to the commandment proper. I know it's a lot to take in by way of preface and by way of introduction, but it really helps set the tone and set the scene as we go through these Ten Commandments together over the course of the next several weeks. Let's turn now to the commandment, the first commandment itself, proper. Now you may have noticed, as we read from Exodus 20, the commandment itself, strictly speaking, is there in verse 3. That's the first commandment. Verses 1 and 2, strictly speaking, are the preface to the Ten Commandments, which gives the basis to all the commandments. It's a wonderful note there. It answers the question of why. That is, why should God's people heed these commands? These ten words that I'm handing down to you from the smoke and fire and thunder of Sinai, why should God's people bring their lives into conformity with his statutes? And really there are three parts, I think, to that answer in verses 1 and 2. Why should we heed God's commands? First off, we should heed God's commands because of the authority of God himself. Because of the authority of God himself. God Almighty is speaking in these words. Verse 1, And God spoke all these words. It may seem pedantic, but it is worth making the point. These words are not the inventions of men. They are not the consensus of a group of theologians or the deductions of an ecclesiastical council or, worse yet, the conclusions of a study committee, dreaded, dreaded study committees. If they were, we might have the right to disregard them. No, these come with the authority of God himself because it is God himself speaking in these words. I understand that it is the conventional wisdom in some circles that when your children are asking you why... Why do I have to do this thing which you said? 
Apparently, we are to give them a reason and not just simply say, because I said so. Boys and girls, do you ever hear your parents say that to you when you keep asking why? Why do I need to do this? Because I said so. I suspect many of you have. But it seems to me that there are occasions when that is a perfectly proper and fitting response. And that's precisely what's happening here. We ought to obey. Why? Well, at least in part, because he said so. Because of who he is. Because of the authority of God speaking in these words. But also, why obey? So that's one reason, because of God's authority. But not just because of God's authority, but because of God's identity. A second reason, God's identity. Look again at verse 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. We should obey because of his essential identity. I am the Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps there. That means the covenant name stands behind that. It's Yahweh or Jehovah. I am Yahweh. I am the great sovereign king, the God who is alone majestic in splendor, the God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, the creator before whom every creature must bow, the one to whom we all owe obedience and we owe all obedience. But do also notice how it says, I am the Lord, your God. Not just the Lord high and lifted up. Yes, but the Lord who condescends. The God who stoops down low, coming in grace and mercy, binding himself in covenant love to be your God and to take you to be his child. The Lord of glory, come down to make you his. I am the Lord your God who speaks to you now. Obey him because of who he is essentially in and of himself as great sovereign creator and Lord governor of all the cosmos. But also, beloved, obey him because of who he is to you and to you specifically, your God and Savior. But thirdly, why obey? Because of God's authority, because of God's identity, but also why obey? Because of the grace of God. Look again at verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you love the great preface of grace that governs all of these commandments that follow? And this preface is so often overlooked. We read it all the time in our own personal devotional readings. We read it all the time when we rehearse these Ten Commandments together in our corporate worship services. It's so easily overlooked, so familiar it is that we pass it by. But just like we were thinking about this morning, if we get the order of operations wrong here, it can do and has done untold spiritual damage. It is not, do these things and you will become my people. Do these things and you might merit your way into my good graces, into a positive standing with me. Do these things and I might be deigned to be pleased with you and take you to myself. No, it is, I am the Lord your God. Now, right now, right now. And I have redeemed you. I have redeemed you to myself. You are my people, my choice, my precious possession. I am yours and you are mine. Now, therefore, therefore, this is how you should live. 
What a difference this is from the gods that they have been surrounded by for four centuries. This is not some distant, aloof, austere tyrant. This is not the god of the pagans like Ra, Amun-Ra, or Zeus of Greek paganism, or even the god of Islam. This is not some god who is subject to cosmic mood swings and irritability such that unless you appease him early and often in his fickle mood and his fickle behavior, he may indeed cast you off forever just because you caught him on a bad day. No. As one commentator said, he is the God who reigns and rescues, who is the Lord who loves his people and intervenes, who bears his mighty arm to set his people free. Close quote. He is Israel's savior. And they have been redeemed from bondage. And brothers and sisters, we have been redeemed, have we not, from an even greater bondage than they, from the slavery not of Egypt, not of wicked, tyrannical Pharaoh, but of slavery from sin. And we've been redeemed not just by the blood of some lamb from a barnyard pasture, but we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Why should we do what God says? Well, we might take this marvelous preface to the Ten Commandments and translate it into the New Testament. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In him, we have redemption by his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have been set free, and he has made us his. We obey God because of his authority, because of who he is, but also because of the marvelous grace of God the one who rescues his people and he rescues us by means of his one and only son. Those aren't the only motives for obedience, of course. There are plenty of other motives for obedience, good and biblical motives for obedience. And we'll talk about some of those as we go on through this series. But these are grand motives indeed. And they call for the glad giving over of all our lives and all our obedience to all his commands. So that's the second thing that we need to think about. The law how? The law, why? But then thirdly, the law, what? We come to the first command itself, the first command itself, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Or literally in the Hebrew, you shall have no other gods before my face. Do note, and I like how one commentator put it, God is not simply saying, you may have another god, just so long as he stays in second place. You can have as many other gods as you may like. Just make sure that you put me first in the pecking order and make me first among many. No, it is that no other gods whatsoever are permitted at all. You are permitted to have none at all. There are not to be for you any other gods in existence. No competitor gods shall exist in my presence and I'm everywhere, he says, omnipresent. He has an exclusive claim over our lives. This is our proclivity in our native fallen nature. Romans 1.25, you know it well. Before we were Christians, we exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The human heart, as John Calvin famously put it, is a perpetual factory of idols. Just imagine a conveyor belt coming out of your heart, into your mind, out of your mouth. As soon as one idol pops out and you might smash it, soon comes another, 
and another and another, perpetually churning out from that steam factory more and more wicked idols. Because the fact is, people, humans, worship. We all worship something. And we will worship something because we were created. We are hardwired to worship. I know this may sound controversial in some sectors of our current culture and climate, but the option does not exist for you to be worship neutral. I remember I was having a conversation once with a skeptic. He was probably an agnostic, flirting with atheism. And he made the audacious claim, I don't worship anything. Well, in a wonderful, sad, and hilarious moment of providence, a few moments later, we were standing in a parking lot outside of a grocery store, I think, maybe a department store, but the wind blew loose a shopping cart right into the side of his brand new, beautiful, shiny, expensive sports car, and it scratched and gouged up the side of it something horrendous. Given his temper in the moment and the torrent of expletives that flowed from his mouth at that point, I think his claim had been proven false, though I didn't rub it in exactly at that moment, given his mood. We are worshipers. Despite his claims to the contrary, we are worshipers. Everyone will worship something, but since our father Adam ate the forbidden fruit in Eden, the problem is, ever since then, we've been worshiping the wrong thing. We make idols. And that doesn't mean that you go and pray and offer a pinch of incense to a little stone statue that you keep in your home. I think far too often that's the imagery that people have in mind when they think of idolatry. Well, I don't have a little statue of Buddha hidden in my closet where I offer a pinch of incense, so I'm good. I don't commit idolatry. No. There's a somewhat famous quote from Origen, one of the early church fathers who well describes idolatry for us. He said this, What each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. What each one of us honors before all other things, what each one of us admires before all things and loves before all things, whatever that thing is, that has become to us. God. And so the question, brothers and sisters, is simple. What do you most love? What is it that is essential to your contentment and joy? What is the thing that defines your identity and worth? And whatever answer you give, that answer defines God for you. And if it is not the God of Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is an idol that must be dethroned, struck down from the throne of your heart. The first commandment calls for us to do some spiritual inventory, brothers and sisters. Search your hearts. Examine yourselves. Where and what are your idols? Is it your job, your income, finances? Is it leisure? Your public reputation. You simply must be thought well of by others, even strangers, as smarter than, stronger than, more important than they. What is that thing, that arrangement, that that life situation without which you say, I cannot be content without this thing. I cannot be content without this scenario. I will not be satisfied. And whatever that thing is, that is your God. You shall have no other gods before me. As one English translation puts Exodus 20, verse 5, I will brook no rivals, says the Lord. Our relationship is to be exclusive. 
And many Old Testament scholars will note that this scene here in Exodus 19 and 20 with God coming down on the mountain and Israel at the base of Sinai is essentially a marriage ceremony between God and his people, a ceremony of covenantal union. And I think, by and large, that's right. Most of us are likely familiar with the traditional wedding vows that have come down to us in the English language, uh, originally from the Book of Common Prayer from the Church of England. Do you remember where the minister says, Wilt thou have this woman to be thy wedded wife? Wilt thou love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep thee, that is, keep yourself only to her, so long as you both shall live? Forsaking all others, keeping only to one another forever. As he says, the minister says to the husband, Wilt thou keep thee only to her? so long as you both shall live. Many commentaries note here that Exodus 20, there's a parallel point in Isaiah 54, verse 5. It says, Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Your maker is your husband. The first commandment, you see, friends, is a kind of marriage vow in which God the Lord is speaking to his bride, Israel. The church under age, as our confession so lovely puts it, and he is commanding them to affirm the exclusive place he holds in their hearts, and for us as well. And I think when we frame it with that kind of understanding, looking at it like a marriage, our minds are immediately drawn to the reality of Ephesians 5, of Christ the bridegroom and the church his people the bride. We are called to an exclusivity to the one who came in pursuit of his bride, the one who gave himself up for her in order to redeem her and make her his. And so as we close, dear friends, it's worth noting that in verse 3, the you there, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, it's singular in Hebrew. It's not plural. It's singular. He is speaking to the whole congregation of Israel, but it's rather deliberate, I think, on God's part to use the singular you at this point such that it is spoken to every single individual. Israel, you shall have, you shall have no other gods before me. You, and you, and you, and you. I am yours, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you are mine. Therefore, brethren, in view of God's mercies, Romans 12, or Acts 14, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved but the name of Jesus. What is this then but the call of the bridegroom, calling us to an exclusivity of relationship, claiming our hearts entirely for himself? What wondrous love is this? How, how can such love be anything else but exclusive, worshipfully, redemptively monogamous? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Or, perhaps Isaiah 43, verse 1. Again, in the singular, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. This is the call and claim of Calvary. From the mouth of God at Sinai, even from Jesus Christ, who gave all that he might make you his. So let's give him the worship that he's due. Let's render to him the glad obedience that he's due. Let's give him our life, 
our soul, our all, that he is surely due. Praise God for his word to us tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we do bless you for your word. Have mercy on us, we pray. Help us to come to Christ in repentance and faith, to forsake all others and cling only to him now and always. We know that you will brook new rivals, and we pray, O God, by your grace and power, that there would be no rivals for the affection of the Lord our Savior in our heart, that we would be wholly given over to you. How grateful we are that Christ has given his all for us, so may we rest upon him by faith with joy and gratitude, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.